Hey everyone, and welcome to the Race IndyCar Podcast. My name is Jerry Hildebrand, and today we're here to discuss the crazy debut of the Music City Grand Prix in Nashville. Joining me is my co-host, Jack Benyon, and we're hopefully going to untangle one of the strangest races of the year so far. So what do you think, Jack? It was definitely that, wasn't it? It was definitely uh, <laughs> it was definitely an, uh, an unusual race. I mean, you know, just a few little things that I, I quite liked about it. There was, well, maybe not quite liked, but some things that I liked to pick out that were quite entertaining, that there was 33 caution laps out of the 80 laps in the race. There was two red flags and nine cautions. Um, yeah, just a, a crazy all-round race. And I guess at this point in the podcast, we usually do a little bit of a roundup of, of what happened, but um, it took me 1,700 words to explain how Marcus Ericsson won that race in my feature for the race that came out on Monday. So <laughs> it goes. I think the way that he, with the, the, the simplest, I mean, I, so this is funny because I was going back and forth with some people on like F1 Twitter a couple, I don't know, last week or something about, uh, I, I was, I was getting a bunch of arguments from people about, I was, I made the comment that I felt like F1 cars right now are kind of delicate and and of course, that's just like blasphemous to, you know, some F1 people on Twitter. And it's kind of like, OK, well, I'm obviously biased because I come from racing the IndyCar series. But the single reason that Marcus Erickson was able to win that race is because IndyCar is just a tank. And that's basically the, the be all end all of it here. Like this, the, the fact that as many cars just finished this race after all the crazy stuff that happened is like a testament to what makes IndyCar so much different than you know, on, on the other side of it. Okay. Yeah. We know that we know that F1 cars are faster. We know that they race at different kinds of tracks. We know that, you know, we know all this stuff, but um, there's, there's something to be said for a race car that can do go through all of the craziness that IndyCars went through this past weekend and uh, and still make it to the end. I'd like to see the F1 guys crank up their cars three or four inches on the ride height and then just kind of see how that goes when it comes to downforce yeah, and right. predictability of the car. I'm sure things would be a little bit different there, especially given the the bumps come in on and off the bridge. But yeah, let's try and let's try and wrap this up quickly as we can here, JR. I guess Marcus was obviously the story of the day given his comeback drive. He started 18th after crashing and qualifying um on the inside of turn three. I think he'd hit in, in his quite his fast qualifying lap and that kind of took him out of the uh, equation. And then on lap four, I think he made up three positions at this point, um, along with Sebastian Bourdais of, of AJ Foyt Racing, your teammate. And then yeah, I guess the concert the pack just concertinaed up and Marcus went straight over the back of uh, Borde's uh, rear wing and, and got airborne. If you've not seen that yet, you're just listening to the podcast and you've not watched the race or you, you're not really got around to the specific highlights and stuff, definitely go and check that out because, as JR said, it's an absolute testament to IndyCar that that car finished the race given the, the amount of damage. And to be honest, in the post-race kind of you know, press conference, Marcus was like, yeah, you know, there was some damage to the floor and the, the front suspension, but it was, yeah, it was nothing too bad. <laughs> so, um, yeah, to, to, to see that incident and just think that there wasn't too much damage on the car was, was, um, was pretty crazy. So obviously he got a, a drive, well, a stop go penalty for, for that topped off of fuel. Um, and then I guess, you know, he came out with, you know, 20 seconds between himself and the back of the pack. And he just had to kind of you know, pummel away a little bit there for a couple of laps, but then there were so many cautions that that kind of gap was negated. And then we had a blockage at turn 10 for Will Power diving up the inside of Simon Pagino that kind of 
basically blocked the track and Marcus was able to kind of sneak through there. And in doing that, that was the key moment of the race because he was then topped off with fuel and then up to kind of 12th, 11th in, in the race, which meant he was the kind of the first car then who topped off with fuel and had, had that extra fuel. So because we had so many caution laps, basically, it was a, a bit of a guessing game as to how many laps left you would need to actually make it to the end. But obviously you're able to save so much fuel under a caution that it just made the, the strategies that little bit more kind of crazy. Obviously, Colton Herter was on pole. Biggest qualifying deficit of, of the year to anybody else. Absolutely unbelievable performance. Top both practices. And then was easily the star of the race, pulling off some amazing overtakes at places like um, Turn 8, which is just, you know, if you when you looked at the track map and looked at the simulator, that didn't look like it was going to be anywhere near a passing opportunity. And Colton pulled it off two or three times, twice on his teammate, Ryan Hunter-Ray. So that was pretty incredible. But yeah, he was he was kind of uh, stitched up by strategy a little bit and had to pit a bit later than Marcus. And then Marcus obviously assumed the lead of the race and because of the cautions, didn't need another pit stop. So it was then kind of in position to, to kind of hold Colton off and then did so under massive pressure from Colton, who was on fresher tyres and didn't need to do any fuel saving. So to kind of have like a, a wild herter behind you after such a dominant weekend and, and hold him off was was really impressive. And then Colton had a few warnings that he was maybe pushing a little bit too hard. And then with six laps to go, put it in the wall in the exit of turn nine. And then that brought out the red flag. Marcus then obviously had to manage the the win for the last two laps, but Scott Dixon was on kind of, I think, 48 lap old tyres at that point. And, you know, it was obviously there was a lot of caution laps on those tyres, but still it was an amazing performance to get to the end on that set. Having done... Um, uh, a splash and dash in the middle of the race, which I don't, I don't know about you, JR, but I don't remember that happening any, any time recently. And uh, yeah, that was kind of how it all played out. So James Hinchcliffe came through and took the podium as well. So a bit, a bit of a crazy order, a crazy race. You know, obviously Herta was, you know, totally dominant all weekend and arguably in the race was dominant as well. You know, the, the overtakes he was able to make and the, just the sheer pace that he had in his car, he was definitely the, the standout guy. Question I wanted to ask you, JR, was, you know, he's he's obviously risked it late. Like I said, there was a couple of pointers there that he was pushing hard. He had a big moment at turn nine where he just about kept out the wall and, and saved it. You know, do you think that was worthy for him to risk so much at, at that point because he's kind of out of the championship pitch or at least he's right on the bubble and he needs to win? So, you know, do you think that's kind of, you know, something that was that Herter should have been doing or is that kind of all out style something that is going to, you know, maybe, you know, be a little bit of a problem for, for Colton in the future when it comes to things like fighting for a championship. I guess I think that just watching it, I definitely got the impression that he's just going for the win. You know, they feel like they sort of deserve to be leading the race and when, and, and in that position. And frankly, from just from a pace perspective, like if, if a bunch of crazy stuff during the race hadn't happened, he would have been, um, so I guess I can kind of understand it from that perspective. I don't get the sense from those guys that they're really thinking championship right now. Uh, you know, they haven't had cons- a consistent enough year for that to be on their, uh, on their minds. And in the IndyCar series, I would sort of say like most guys, probably if you're not genuinely in the hunt for the outright championship win, second doesn't matter, you know, whether you finish second or eighth. Like it doesn't really matter that much to the teams. I don't think there's not, there's not like an extraordinary payoff for finishing third versus fifth versus seventh or whatever. So I think that 
you know, it, it very much looked like to me that his perspective in the car was I'm going for the win. This is my, this is, this is mine to, to go capture and to, to close out an incredible weekend. Like we talked about, like you, you mentioned in the beginning. Um, so that, you know, that was his point of view. And I, I don't, I don't find any fault in that. I think if, if the scenario was different, if he was genuinely in the championship hunt, if he was sitting there in the top three or four, then I'm not sure that he would have been driving this way. So until we really get him in that scenario, um, I'm, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna, you know, pick and play too much with, with how he was driving the car to your point. I mean, he definitely was, there were definitely, as the race was winding down, I don't necessarily think that I, I wasn't watching it thinking he's getting desperate. I just think that he was continuing to push as tires were going off and the margin was getting less and less. He was clearly doing some things. He was driving a car when the car was underneath him. Looked to me, and we talked about this a little bit in the pre-event pod, you know, this track ended up being, it's super bumpy and there's things like that that are not like St. Petersburg, but just with how tight the infield sections were and you've got a couple of, just like at St. Pete coming off the front straightaway, you know, big wide entry into turn one. It was kind of had a little bit of that feeling getting into turn nine off the end of the back straight, um, you know, off the bridge. There were some of those kinds of things that I felt like in, in the back of my mind, I was thinking Colton and Rossi and, and the Andretti cars were potentially going to be in the mix just because their stuff's been so good at St. Pete over the years. And, and to me, it's always looked good there because it's, they look like they can drive the hell out of the cars. You know, they can, they can go in super deep. The cars are stable and they've got just enough front end, just enough reaction from the front tire. They get the front tire to work and it doesn't seem like it, they blow it off over the course of the race. Uh, they can get through the tight stuff and, and keep the car working. Whereas you see a lot of the other guys, it's, it's a lot more compromises in terms of how the car works um, in different parts of the track. They're, they're kind of losing the rear and they can't go super deep. So they're, they're having over the course of a tire stint to really manage all of these things and, and manage, you know, the front versus the rear and trying not to have one end or the other go off a ton by the end of the stint the Andretti cars just don't look like they're really dealing with that. So, you know, for Colton, um, you know, it's, it's, it's what you end up doing in these kinds of situations. You, you know that you have some strengths and so you just, you really lean into where the car has been good, where you've been able to eat away at, at the cars in front of you. And, you know, in the end he was faster than everybody. I, I would like, I would actually love to go back and just look through some of the sector timing through the weekend. But um, I mean, it struck me that he was better in turn nine than everybody by like chunk, like, he just no matter who he was around on track practice qualifying the race whatever he just looked like he was flowing way more speed through there super deep aggressive on the on the initial turn in sometimes you know turning in a little earlier than other guys were and just floating the speed down into the corner kind of trusting that the you know he's going to get off the brake the front's going to hook up and it's going to turn and he's going to get enough of an exit shot that the the entry speed that he was flowing into the corner was going to be you know, that way he was going to get enough of a gain there that, that the exit wasn't entirely important from that perspective. Um, you know, and in the end, maybe just pushing a little bit too hard in those places that he had an advantage. Um, so I, I guess from my perspective, 
there weren't that many drivers that could have resisted Herta in that, you know, given the form that he had. What'd you make of the quality of Ericsson's drive, especially at the end there? And I guess from one question that I have is, do you think that he was running less downforce than the other guys? It's, uh, it's, I think he was running a, a little bit less downforce just from the, the speed he had on the straights. And obviously he talked about it being one of his best drives of his career and and basically using all of exper- his experience on street courses that he's raced at over the years. Obviously, Macau, he had the record there for a, for a long time. And then obviously in Formula One, there's places like Baku where you learn a little bit about street racing. And it is different to IndyCar, but you do pick up things. And he talked about using all of his experience to basically negate the loss of how much fuel saving he was having to do versus Colton in the kind of corners and then being able to to boot the throttle and keep Colton behind in the places where he could overtake. So he's kind of walking along a tightrope at this point. And he, he said the team kept giving him a higher and higher fuel number, which was, you know, when, you, when you've seen how quick Colton's been all weekend and he's right on your gearbox and then the team keeps saying, you need to save more fuel, you need to save more fuel. I think you can start to understand what a high pressure situation that is. And, you know, I think we can take this within the context of the season. And, and it is that, you know, Marcus has basically been a driver that has been kind of either underrated or cast aside for most of his career in terms of, you know, whether it's, you know, junior formulas where he was a little bit more successful or whether it was, you know, when he was running a bit further back in Formula One and and, and struggled a little bit there to kind of shine and and, and show his true ability in, in places. And I think what we're seeing this season and what we're seeing over the last few races, you know, maybe if we flick back to kind of the whole thing where, you know, Marcus was maybe a little bit upset not to have featured in our kind of mid-season top 10 driver rankings. And we, I think we were wrong not to mention him as one of the people on the outside, but he didn't make the top 10. And I think, I think he's seen something in himself and he's acknowledging a level of performance that he's reached that is better than before. And I think that shows that because what we've seen previously from Marcus and IndyCar is some, some very, very consistent runs, not matched with you know, kind of elite pace, let's say. So there's people like Dixon who are consistent, but Dixon will go and win three races in the year and will constantly score top fives as well as those kind of top eights and, and top tens that he scores on, on on his bad weekends with bad in kind of inverted Austin Powers, Dr. Evil kind of fingers. So, uh, you know, I think what we're seeing over the past five to 10 races, or let's just say after the Indy 500, is Marcus showing that, not only is he consistent, but he's able to consistently fight at the front and he's able to score these big results that he's not previously been able to, to quite hook up. We know he had the ability to do it. He's just not quite been able to, to reach that. So I think him resisting that pressure from Herta is kind of almost like, um, you know, I don't want to go to like English literature essay on this, but it's kind of symbolic of his performances over recent weeks and, and, and the level that he's kind of taken his drive into recently and him acknowledging that he's reached that level, you know, he knows within himself that he is driving better than he has before. You know, he's still making mistakes every now and again, but he, he is performing consistently at a high level. And there's many reasons for that is he's bedded in with the team. Well, it's, it's an, it was a new team within a team last year and they're all getting to know each other better and they're still kind of getting used to it. Marcus is still getting used to racing in IndyCar. And also he's, you know, not only has he got this looming shadow of Scott Dixon as a teammate, which is a basically impossible thing to to have, but then suddenly Alex Pelot's come in at the start of this year and basically led the whole championship or at least been in the in the lead of the championship for most of the year. So that's just another thing for Marcus to contend with when it comes to 
how people rate him and what they say about his performances. He's got Dixon and Pelot as as his teammates. So, you know, this is it's it's been a difficult season in that sense, Marcus. But you know, great performance over that. You know, over the course of that last stint, I think it was definitely his best performance of the year, in in my opinion. Um, you know, because we we talked before the weekend, and there's a piece on the race if you want to go back and and read about. Uh, Marcus kind of addressing him being under the radar in IndyCar, um, you know, this season. So yeah, brilliant performance, really. One that's kind of brought him potentially into the into the championship picture even more. Made up some points on on the people around him, and yeah, just delivered one of the drivers of the season because you know he, he mentioned in a in a preseason piece that you can read on the the race from last week that although his Detroit win was obviously a massive result for him being his first IndyCar win, that Mid Ohio was arguably a better performance from him. And he acknowledged that basically as a, you know, the fact that he kind of reeled in Joseph Newgarden and, and put 22 seconds on Alex Pelot to finish second in that race, even though it was a second, you know, he he arguably felt that that was a bigger performance from from, from himself. And I think we're, we're just seeing, you know, a different Marcus Ericsson at the moment, one that is, you know, acknowledging, as I've said, you know, how highly he is drive how how well he's driving at the moment and the the performances he's he's kind of capable of putting in he's trimmed a little bit of the the lead off the um off the guys in front but he still needs to take 16 points per race out of Alex Pelot to have a chance of winning the championship and we've got five races left do you think that's realistic or do you still think we're kind of seeing the maybe the foundations of a 2022 title push from from Marcus as opposed to this being actually a realistic um you know push towards the end of the season now despite his form i think if you're any of these guys in the top five or six or whatever in the championship then uh, you know we'll, we'll just shut it off at, at erickson in fifth that you got to just go into every race with your team with with the knowledge that anything can happen in these events alex blow could he could just get taken out or have a bad weekend or whatever and and suddenly all of these guys are right in the mix so I think that you, you have to just, and they, they obviously all know this, but you got to just show up and do your thing and, and how the weekends play out is, is how they play out. And I think looking at it for me from the outside, that's, that's basically how, I mean, it's, it's not the most exciting answer to the question. You know, I, I think that sometimes people want like a mad prediction in terms of what's going to happen, but I, you know, from my perspective, it's just, it's going to play out how it's going to play out. And, um, it's something that I'd like to comment on as far as Marcus's season goes and just where, where he's gotten to now is with these types of events. And, and he talked about mid Ohio and, and his run for second there. You might not see it on the stat sheet. You know, fans don't always kind of recognize those things from the outside. Um, but that the, the biggest, I think the biggest gain that you have as a driver often in those situations is, just how much it brings you and your crew and your engineers and your strategists and everybody together to know that, yes, we can do this. Like we were the best car on this Ganassi squad in at a, at a racetrack at mid Ohio that it over the last decade has been like a Dixon smoke show, like just goes, shows up and destroys everybody there. And, and often his teammates can't even like hold a candle to him no matter who they are. So I think that, to be able to have those types of performances, you can talk about driver confidence and all that kind of stuff. That's something that that obviously you know plays into it. But just the the vibe that you end up creating within your team and sort of the belief 
that everybody starts to have, not to say that it isn't there or that it wasn't there prior to that, but the more weekends you have, the more, the more you can start to silence everything else that's going on outside of your core group. And, and I think that that's where you see these more consistent, like championship runs start to happen. It's what Scott Dixon and the nine crew have every weekend. Like that's probably between, you know, him and new garden. They've both, that's why they're where they're at and why they're always considered championship contenders. Maybe from the outside, it's because you see them showing up and winning races and doing all this kind of stuff, but looking at it a little bit more internally, you just know that no matter what, no matter how first practice went, no matter how qualifying went, no matter how the first stint in the race goes, that those groups as, you know, the two car and the nine car, they just know that they, they can like outlast people, you know, and they've got a guy in the car that is absolutely under any conditions going to be up to the challenge. And sometimes they screw up and sometimes they don't take advantage of that. Um, but it happens rarely and they, they continue to just be able to bounce back. And, um, there, there's sort of a, there's a, there's a grinding mentality to the way that those operations work and that, that you build that with a group of guys and, you know, guys, men and women on the teams, um, you know, over the course of some period of time, it, it doesn't happen overnight. So I feel like that's, kind of what we're starting to see what's what we've seen in large part because of Marcus's performances, you know, that you're starting to see maybe a little bit of that starting to grow within that, within that crew. So, um, I think if there's, if there's really something to take away from this weekend, for me, it's, it's that, that that's happening with that group of guys and probably within just the larger Ganassi organization, uh, that that squad within those you know four cars is starting to become like a gen a real genuine contender and um you know they, they have to be respected from that perspective and uh, you know i think so i guess to answer the question okay can they can they eat away at 16 points per race weekend it's probably not going to happen like that if they do it it's going to be because they pick up 30 points here and there because of you know weird stuff happening but um, are they in the mix for sure? Just like the rest of the top five is. I kind of, uh, yeah, I, I totally agree. I think, I think I'm more on the side of Ericsson not being in the hunt at this point based on how far back he is with, with five races, but definitely agree with the fact that, you know, we've seen pretty much anything can happen, but I just think Dixon and Pelot have just been too consistent this year to drop 16 points a race. And I, I can't see that changing. Let's, did want to pick up on some of the other drivers that we've not had a chance to mention yet and just kind of do a little bit of a run through just because the race was so bonkers that it, it seems like there's not really a, a kind of natural flow to the storyline of this race where we can kind of just pick up people along the way. You kind of need to pick people out and <laughs> kind of single them out because people just ended up all over the place. But let's start with Polo because obviously we've mentioned him a couple of times there, obviously the points leader. Um amazingly managed to finish seventh despite spending the whole basically the whole race outside of the top 20 <laughs> um and also extended his points lead in the process so yeah just a bit of a crazy race from him he was pinned down by pit, one of the first kind of group to to pit and that was in the first half of the race that worked out that it was a a kind of bad thing to do but with their second stop they kind of got back onto the right kind of strategy and picked off a few people um a, a few be benefited from a few of the cautions and and kind of were able to 
to move up from there and uh, the the late, kind of late race move. We'll talk about Ed Jones a little bit later on, but he kind of battered his way past Felix Rosenquist at turn nine with the in the penultimate lap, and then Pelot was able to kind of follow him through and, and and finish that sort of move off. So so took seventh from there, which is really impressive. Felt like Simon Pagano was someone who could have definitely been in the conversation of being much higher up in the in the race, but was kind of taken out twice by. First by his teammate, which we alluded, yeah. to, alluded to a little bit earlier on, which we'll talk about again in a short minute for uh, a little bit about turn 10 and the impact of that that had on the race. That was the last corner before the restart line. Um, yeah, Simon just left a bit of room and checked up um, on, on the outside and, and Power saw his opportunity and went for it and kind of watched the move. And it was just a little bit of a six of one, half a dozen of the other, but I don't think Power should have really been thrown up the inside of his teammate there personally. That's just my opinion. Um, and then later on, Roman Grosjean clipped Pagano into a into a spin as well, and he hit the wall after that, and kind of that just ended his race basically. Pato Award was, in terms of we're talking about pace and people where they were running early in the race before, you know, all of the absolute strategy madness started to happen was in that sort of top seven group just behind Felix Rosenquist for most of the kind of early running. But um, yeah, he got a little bit kind of off strategy, and then. Off on one of the restarts, dived down the inside of Alexander Rossi and kind of took the the both of them kind of out of position, um, which is another reason why Rossi kind of disappeared, having been so high up earlier on and was you know right with Colton for for most of that first half of the race there before things started to kick off there. Um, and yeah, I guess I think that kind kind of rounds up most of the people that we're not going to talk about a bit later in the podcast. Is there anyone you kind of felt that you know we kind of went under the radar a little bit or someone? I guess we've not really spoke a whole lot about Hinch, Ryan Hunter, Ray and Graham Rahal, who are third, fourth, and fifth. But it's just one of them races where they, you know, Hinch and, and Hunter Ray got overtaken quite a lot in that race and managed to finish third and fourth. Which, you know, it's just one of them races where you're surviving and you don't necessarily have to have the fastest car because no one's attempting to be the fastest on the track at, at any point. There's so much fuel saving going on and so many cautions that you know that that kind of thing doesn't open up. And Graham just had that. Um, that ideal strategy of pitting um i think it was 32 and 45 was the, the ideal kind of window for for getting to the end there or before 32 but definitely the pitting on lap 45 was definitely the the kind of key to to the race there really but yeah is there anyone you kind of wanted to pick up on at this point or should we should we kind of move on here i mean not in particular just to to mention a couple of things that i thought was interesting walking through those drivers yeah i agree with you i felt that pagano just got <laughs> like totally got the short end of the stick a bunch of times quite symbolic of his um, season really to be honest yeah willpower um making some fairly optimistic moves there in in sort of weird conditions and more often than not on his teammates. So I'm not sure how stoked everybody's going to be about that after the fact. He did, he did take, um, um, he did take responsibility for the, for the McLaughlin crash that happened a bit later on that we didn't mention, which was at turn nine at the bottom of the bridge where he just dived down the inside. And I think his explanation of that was that he was on fresh tires and he thought Scott was giving him a little bit of room and thought maybe there was a window there because Scott's his teammate and probably knew that he was on fresher tires and Scott was on much older tires. So I think Will maybe in a, in a split second moment that happens as a racing driver thought there's a bit of room here and this guy's it's letting like, me oh, through. I'm going to take by. it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you saw that happen with Colton and, and Ryan Hunter Ray a yeah. couple of times that it was sort of like, okay, I don't think he's really letting you by, but 
there was some awareness of where each other were and I guess just a general understanding of what was going on there that, that made it happen. See, I, I, I'm not throwing major fault at, at Will for anything in particular. It was kind of like, okay, this is just a crazy race and you got to do what you got to do. Um, but, but obviously with the benefit of hindsight, neither of those uh, were great looks. Um, yeah, Roger's not going to be happy. No, I don't think so. Just generally, this was a pretty miserable weekend for the Penske boys altogether. I, I think something that's worth mentioning, basically all of the highlights that we've talked about here are Honda cars going to the front. Um, <laughs> I don't, I, I would, while, while obviously the, the different, the disparity between Chevy and Honda is so small and they've got advantages in different places and you see Chevy cars going to the front at other places. I do think that there's been a longstanding, you know, thought, I guess, within the paddock that the Hondas on particularly in low grip conditions on road and street circuits, even on ovals, but particularly noticeable on road and street circuits have a bit better drivability, just a, a more, a, a higher and more sort of consistent torque curve that the car gets into its, gets into its power band and is easier to drive once it gets there. I, I wouldn't be, I, I, I found myself watching this race, just thinking that a little bit, watching how you, know, you watched Hinch and Hunter Ray drive around and, and even Graham Rahal. And it's kind of like, okay, these, these guys are basically kind of running where they're at just because cooler heads are sort of prevailing here. And that's awesome. I mean, I'm, it's, it's nice sometimes to see events like that, where that, where it works that way for guys like that, because they've had, they've had a bunch of good weekends. They've had, they've had situations where they've qualified well and hasn't gone their way for a variety for reasons that are sort of outside of their control or because they end up on the wrong side of strategy or whatever. So um, I'd say kudos to those guys for pulling it together. I mean, at one point the Andretti cars were running like two, three, four, five or something. So they obviously had, had pace and were just, you know, didn't, didn't get themselves caught up in a, in a bunch of messes and, and managed to avoid getting themselves in some messes by letting cars go by that were, you know, just hell bent on getting to the front at, at different points in the race. So uh, I'm not going to, I'm not going to chalk that up as a knock on, on any of those guys. Um, but it did, it did definitely appear that Honda cars tended to be just going to the front over the course of the race. And the Chevy runners were having a little bit, you know, and a lot of them just caught, got caught up in, the madness over the course of it. Joseph Newgarden, obviously with some damage early and, and just couldn't do anything with it over the course of the race. Didn't, didn't really ever have a major strategic advantage at any point. Um, you know, so I think Felix Rosenquist, the highest Chevy at the end of the whole deal in, in eighth. Um, and, and unfortunately just kind of an under the radar performance for him. It was, it looked strong, qualified, Qualified in the top six. Well, if he was, yeah. right. Um, so anyway, I, I think from my perspective, yeah, a lot of crazy little things happening. Scott McLaughlin, actually, I, I, the only thing I'm going to say about Scott is he had a bunch of imp super impressive like saves and not major crashes that probably could have been. Like he is clearly the one, at, the one at turn four with Chilton was unreal. Well, so I, yeah, I'd love to see another replay of that because I think he basically bounced it off the wall to like keep it together and then just made the corner. Like everything was totally fine. Um, and even the couple of times that he got punted and spun around, like 
he's obviously, you know, comfortable enough in the car and has good enough sort of spatial awareness to, to just keep it together and keep his foot in it and stay out of the wall and all that kind of stuff. I think there's, there's something to be said. He gets a, he gets an honorable mention for just uh, not having an even worse event with more crash damage basically. But, uh, but yeah, there's a great, there's a great one. It's, there was a great one at St. Pete as well for, for Scotty. I don't know if you remember that one. I think trying to think where it was on the track at St. Pete, but I just remember him, you know, everybody else coming out of a corner in a straight line and him just being like totally sideways and still managing to hold on to the position. So maybe he's developing a bit of a, a reputation for being a bit of a save master now. And yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's nice to see a rookie, you know, kind of taking it by the, the scruff of the neck, just like he did in, in supercars, I guess. Yeah, no, I think uh, I'm, I'm still excited to see, see more from Scott going forward. And he's had a lot of pace this year and uh, you know, I, I, he's, it's, it's, it's obviously a super tough championship and, you know, Penske's not been the dominant force this year. They've, they've been really great at a few places, but not consistently dominant as they have been at times in the past. So I think uh, I think there's still a lot more to see from him. In the spirit of not upsetting any more IndyCar drivers and trying to be a bit more inclusive and not forgetting people, I think you're definitely right to pick out Joseph Newgarden and, you know, basically a win in 10th because he'd made it through to the fast six, but crashed in qualifying. So that dropped him down the order a little bit. And then what can only be described as an aggressive move by Graham Rahal kind of took Newgarden uh, a little bit by surprise and pushed him down the order. He definitely wasn't very happy about that. And then the, um, which move was it after that? I think he was kind of, um, he, he'd backed off for the, um, the, the Bourdais Ericsson crash as well and got a little bit boxed in and lost quite a few yeah. positions there as well. So that really, yep. you know, nothing went his way there at all in terms of his positioning on the track and just, you know, there was a few people who had that kind of, Pagano was in a similar situation where just, you know, nothing really New Garden could have done differently if he'd replayed that race, you know, other than, you know, hindsight being able to avoid those moves. If we're just talking about, you know, purely just replaying that race, it's not really anything New Garden could, could have done differently. And by the way, the the Ray Hall sort of crash, let's call it, let's not call it a crash, it wasn't really a crash, but the coming together meant that his steering was like totally bent to the left. So he basically did the whole race with his steering like bent over to the left. And if you've seen like the like how tight turn eight is, for example, like I can't imagine, you know, doing that for a whole race was particularly easy. And I guess he was probably the only person on in the whole race who was happy to see 33 caution laps because that probably just took a little bit of the physicality away from the drive that he had to pull off there. And, and Rosenquist, like you mentioned, he was unlucky, as we mentioned earlier, he was kind of barged past on, on the penultimate lap and, and would have been sixth. So that would, I mean, eighth was his best result of the year, but sixth would have been, you know, absolutely perfect. And especially on a weekend where we heard that McLaren have taken a controlling stake in, in our own McLaren SP, 75% of the equity stake in the team. So um, Zach Brown told me in a, in, in a call after the race that um, when you rent a house, you don't always put your best furniture in it. So I'm taking that as he's meaning that, you know, the big guns are coming now. He's going to, there's going to be a lot of investment now, a lot of resource applied to that team. And I think they're going to be, uh, you know, definitely a, a team to watch next year. And I'm sure we'll talk about that in the, in the coming weeks as well. We've got time for a couple of quick listener questions, JR. Um, and we might have to revisit some of these next week because obviously there's quite a few questions from this race. One of them was from uh, Ida Ward. Thanks for, for dropping that in. It was about how did Ed Jones, make up 20 positions, which is uh, interesting. Bad qualifying, he was 26th. Um, but yeah, I guess he, he was another driver who kind of really, really benefited from this um, this power and Pagano shunt earlier in the race. 
and kind of made up quite a few positions there that put him in, you know, a good place to to take advantage. He punted Scotty McLaughlin. Poor Scotty McLaughlin. Just hit him and Pagano both hit at least twice in the race into spins and incidents. Absolutely um, incredible year for Penske, just how up and down it's been and how bizarre it's been. But Ed, after that, drove really well. Got on, as I mentioned earlier, that, you know, pitting on lap 45 was was absolutely the key to a lot of the, I mean, I think Newgarden's the highest person up who didn't finish, uh, who didn't pit on lap 45. That was the, the ideal time to pit, both in terms of how quickly they were able to get in and out of pit road because pit road was so short and the pace car was having a big impact on where people kind of filtered out from the pit stops because if the pace car had gone particularly slow at any point, obviously we saw that with Colton nearly making a pit stop under yellow and coming out in the lead almost, you know, ended up coming out fourth, but still, you know, how many tracks on the calendar can you pit from the lead under caution and come out in fourth? It's basically doesn't ever happen really kind of unusual chain of events there. So those, those kind of, um, it's worth noting those caution periods because they were so variable in terms of the speed of the field that were out on track that there was opportunity to either make up spaces or, or, or lose spaces there. So that was quite an interesting part of Jones's drive, but really just one of his most exciting drives of the year. He was, you know, he had his elbows out. He was, he was driving aggressively. You know, the move on McLaughlin was, was ill-timed and, and not a good one, but the, the one on Rosenquist, I think was just about within you know, the bounds of being acceptable, you know, really opportunistic move at, at turn nine, which not many people really, considering that was supposed to be the key overtaking point, were able to pull off across, across the race. I thought we'd see a lot more passing at, at nine, but it just didn't seem to, you know, you mentioned Herter, who was, I mean, you were right to pick out that he was on the brakes later than everybody else. But I think, you know, watching Kurt's on, Herter's on board through the race, he was like 10 metres later on the brakes every corner than everybody else. So <laughs> <That's true. laughs> turn nine wasn't that special for me because I was watching his onboard through the whole race and it was just like, oh, okay. Oh, okay. Yeah. What? <laughs> I was There's like, a pattern here. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, so I guess that's kind of a roundabout way of sort of explaining how Ed Jones had moved up 20 positions. He was aggressive. He was a little bit, you know, in terms of, you know, he benefited from strategy a little bit. But, but did drive uh, and pulled off some key moves when he when he needed to. And, you know, stop-go penalties are basically irrelevant in this race. So that didn't matter too much either. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, the only thing I would add is, you know, these are the types of tracks, you know, all the street circuits are like this, where whatever tires you're on at the end of the race, you might think that there's, a, there's some commonality between how cars are going to work on reds versus blacks and which one's going to be better and all this kind of stuff. And the reality of it is once you get the sun going down and the track starts to change and it's like, where have you been in the pack? How hard did you work your tires for the two laps before the last caution? There's a lot of things that start to play into how, just how much grip you're going to get from the tire. And it struck me, I, I had the benefit since I was racing this weekend of watching the race after watching a lot of the comments. And so I paid a little bit of attention just to watching Ed Jones. And honestly, in that whole last stint, he just looked like he was on reds and he just looked like he had a lot of grip. Like for whatever reason, that car reacted well to those conditions with those tires on the car in a way that some other cars on reds didn't. And same thing with Colton on the blacks. I mean, throughout Colton on any tire sort of throughout the race, but, um, he just, they could, they got the tire to work. The car was, this car stayed stable enough that you could break deep. And, um, you know, Ed, that just, I think that as a driver, I know that feeling of just, 
oh, I've just got, a, I've got a little bit more to work with than the cars that are immediately around me while they're, you know, it was like Pato at Detroit after that last restart that the thing just fired up and he just started doing things with the car that nobody else could do. So um, it looked like a little bit of that too, just the right combo of tires and conditions and, and kind of knowing the car that he had underneath him as well to make, to make a few of those passes at the end. Cause I agree with you, like turn, turn nine ended up being a place. I think that because it's so bumpy and there didn't end up being much divergence from the racing line, the racing line was where you had to be kind of to make, just to make the corner basically like the corner ended up just being, if you, if the braking zone had been totally straight going in there or the braking zone had been easier, I think that might've been, might've turned into more of an obvious passing zone, but uh, it, it turned at the end of both, uh, both of the straightaways at the end of the bridge each way that became, I think even just for cars on their own, you know, difficult sections of track. So um, that played into Ed's hands there at the end from motor racing addict on Twitter. Does IndyCar need a quote unquote, you can't under, you can't overtake until you cross start line rule in order to stop restart crashes. Um, my perspective on this would be, well, the reason that they don't have this, uh, in large part, I think because of oval racing that a lot of times on a restart, once you get it single file, you know, at, at Indy, you're getting the green flag in like turn three or at the end of the back straight. And so it's actually, it's really hard to not overtake. Like you, you'll get in a crash trying to not overtake somebody basically coming to the, coming to the green. Um, it's a good question. I don't know, you know, Jack, not being a driver, just looking at this from the outside, what's your perspective on this? I don't think we should have it season long. I don't think it should be a catch all rule, but I think for for that race, you know, absolutely no criticism of of IndyCar or the organizers of a Nashville race for for this part, this you know this for this section. But in hindsight, knowing what we've seen in that race now, a hundred percent, we needed to have a, at least a gentleman's agreement of not overtaking at that corner and turn ten, which is what we mentioned earlier on. Um, in fact, James Hinchcliffe um, was uh, compared it to Long Beach and and the hairpin there, and and that being a gentleman's agreement in the past, where you just agree that no one overtakes there. And I think, you know, IndyCar could take one step further there and say, you know, on a race by race basis, we'll we'll kind of evaluate this and maybe. You know, for for this race in the future, if the if the corners stay exactly the same, we'll introduce some sort of rule that says you know no overtaking before the before the restart line. It caused a lot of issues, and you know we've talked about this a lot on the pod over the course of the year of, of restarts because it's been a you know a kind of a constant issue, and it's never easy when you've got a a really narrow street track with ninety degree corners to to kind of make that happen. Um, I do wonder if we'd have seen less crashes if we'd have restarted the races from the same place that we started the race from. So you've got the bridge run which is obviously a lot wider. There's a lot more room for people to move around. And, you know, I appreciate that a lot of the hospitality boxes and the stadium and stuff was in front of the finish line. So they wanted to have, you know, that be a focal point of the race and having the start over the bridge wasn't ideal for that. So, you know, people are, you know, people in hospitality and things like that are already missing out on the start of the race. So you don't want them to miss out on every restart as well. But I just think from a, from an avoided incidents point of view, you know, that would have been a, a an ideal thing. And this kind of raises a, a different kind of question for me, which I kind of picked up on, and I'm sure you did sort of reading the interpretations of the race afterwards. And I've written a bit of, well, I've written my opinion on on, on the race on, on this as well, but it's kind of how you, how do you interpret, JR, the, the kind of the, the, the craziness of the race versus how good that was? Because 
I guess there's two lines of thinking here in the sense that, you know, that race was for, for a motorsport purist, not ideal because half of it was under caution. Pretty much there was a load of incidents, you know, the, the fastest person didn't win admittedly through his own mistake, but you know, there, there, there was a lot of kind of, you know, it's not contrived because no one's kind of pulling puppet strings here or, or anything like that, but it did feel like it wasn't a pure IndyCar race where we got to see a lot of really, you know, we got to see Colton doing some overtaking moves, but the, the field in general, it was quite difficult to overtake. It's obviously very narrow in places and, um, you know, the, the kind of number of incidents and the length of the race that that produced, you know, could be seen as a negative. But on the other side of that, if, if you're if you're in the crowd and you've got a beer and you're watching that race, you know, and you're not a motorsport fan or you're someone who only casually watches motorsport and you've come to this race because they've brought it to the middle of Nashville and you live there or you live in the, the nearby area, maybe the drama, the drama of the race has kind of turned you onto motorsport and you're going to be like a lifelong motorsport fan now because you've just seen a load of crazy action and it's been, you know, it might not have been like what some people might describe as like a proper, you know, pure motor race. But at the same time, it's created a lot of excitement and also, you know, given a lot of return to people like sponsors and the people who've, you know, allowed this race to happen by closing the roads in a very busy area. That's not an easy thing to do in downtown Nashville. So, you know, where do you kind of fall on 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 that kind of argument versus, you know, was that race just a bit too crazy or was it actually beneficial in the sense of it actually brought a lot to the series and a lot to the race as well? It's a great question. And and like you said, online, it's it was a, a very polarizing event from that perspective that you got people that are, <clears throat> particularly at the beginning for the first third of the race, which was, you know, more caution than, than not, uh, with the red flag and, and all that kind of stuff. There are some of those kinds of situations that I feel like as a, as just an organization, you'd prefer to avoid, you'd prefer to avoid like red flag stoppages because everybody just piles into each other, particularly on a restart, you know, when you're not even, it's not even like a genuine racing incident or something, that kind of stuff is going to happen on street circuits, going to happen on IndyCar street circuits. Every once in a while, you're just going to have somebody get fired into a tire barrier and it's close quarters by enough that it blocks the track and some guys get stuck and, you know, whatever. That that kind of thing just is going to happen on occasion. And I think that the fact that IndyCar goes to places or races at tracks that are not F1 spec is part of what makes it great is that you have these scenarios where it is, it's just dicey and it's hard not to crash sometimes and and those kinds of things. I think that there are probably some lessons. I'm sure that there's a variety of lessons that IndyCar and you know the the team that designs the tracks and all that kind of stuff will take from this first event. I agree. I totally agree with the point of view on the restart, uh, just where the restart zone is and or what the rules are in terms of where you can pass on the restart. That was obviously the, you know, again with with the benefit of hindsight, we can say that that's definitely the reason for that major red flag. And that to me was probably among all of the incidents, that was the one that looked, made it kind of seem the most Mickey mouse, but all of that being said, you know, we're walking kind of a fine line here because at this point, I guess I feel like the field of drivers and teams is so stacked in IndyCar that you sort of can't, I mean, you could, you could put these guys in these cars like anywhere and you'd have a hard time saying 
that the best driver, you know, you're going to have guys that have earned the win, you know, like it's not, it's, it's been a long time since you've just had Joe blow from the back of the field that didn't, didn't deserve to be there at all end up at the front. Like you're always going to be under pressure. Mar- Marcus Erickson, maybe, uh, you know, I'm, obviously given the way that his race started, you wouldn't think like, okay, he's, he was the deserved winner at the end of it. But by the end of the race, he had to manage the pressure of a handful of the series, you know, what, what people would consider otherwise the series top drivers from his teammate, Scott Dixon from Colton Herta, clearly the fastest guy of the course of the whole weekend and managed to hold him off. So there's a part of like earning the, earning the victory that it gets my stamp of approval for sure. Um, and so I guess from that perspective, you can only argue with the way that these, these races go so much. There isn't, there is an element of it being a spectacle and that being something that defines IndyCar in a way that it doesn't other events, um, street circuit racing, this brand of street circuit racing can always be refined for sure. There are some little tweaks that they can make to avoid some of these types of situations, but you know, IndyCar doesn't doesn't know that that's exactly what they're going to be dealing with until they actually get cars in the track and all that kind of stuff. You know, IndyCar is like, you don't have, you don't have tire warmers. You don't have all this stuff. So you're going to be out there and the tires are going to be lousy for a couple of laps. And that's when everybody's jammed up and it's just kind of a part of the way things work. So if it was up to me, I'd sort of be sitting there thinking, all right, can we, can we throw some, some thoughts at this that we can reduce the likelihood that some of this happens. Are there some places that you can open up corners or change where the tires are or whatever we can, we can make some adjustments to how we're calling certain sections of the track starts, restarts, whatever. Um, but at the end of the day, uh, you know, I guess you got to look out for, you got to look out for how this, how these events come across on TV. That's probably the biggest the biggest downside frankly of having a ton of yellows is just you know it's it's like becomes a drag watching it if you're watching it live on tv it's like okay there's like these whole these long periods of time where nothing's happening but um you know at the end of the day like yeah the trade-off is that you get some really exciting visuals you get you get to see indie cars really on the limit and doing you know guys doing crazy stuff you just don't really get anywhere else in motorsport i feel like so um to me it's not it's not grounds to like make a huge change or go somewhere else instead or whatever i think it's just trying to continue to refine this version of the indycar product to be to to be a little because it i think it's fair to say that from a purist perspective sometimes these are like harder races to watch because you're just like, okay, when are we actually going to get to, you know, seeing the guys at the front really do battle. Um, But to me, that's like, okay, well, let's make some adjustments, not let's go somewhere else. I guess the obvious count, not counterpoint, because it's not really, I'm not really arguing with your, your train of thought at all, but I guess another thing you can throw into the pot is that I guess if you look back at St. Pete, you know, Colton basically dominated that and led like 96 of the 100 laps, was it, in 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 that race? And, you know, that's too far the other way, isn't it? That you're not going to be particularly exciting new fans or people who've come to Nashville to watch the race for the first time with that kind of performance. I mean, obviously, 
if you if you if you're pandering more to the purest view, they're going to appreciate the fact that Herter has just been so like brilliant in that race that you can just sit there and really enjoy that performance. You know, like a virtuoso performance, but at the same time, it doesn't create you know a particularly exciting race up front and and, and something that has you nail biting. Whereas, you know, uh, I don't think we even got a chance to nail bite in that Nashville race because there was just everything was just changing lap by lap and it was just um, you know a, a completely bizarre race but one that i think with a few as you mentioned with a few little changes could be you know a really entertaining spectacle and i think it's i think as much as you can criticize some of the things that happened i think you've got to give a lot of credit to the organizers and i know, I know you share in this that they that they for a first time doing a street course with a, a brand new event that was a, a pretty fantastic effort and a lot of the drivers um you know kind of backed that up and were really pleased with the kind of layout of the track just a few little things that they've thrown into the pot to kind of, you know, hope, hopefully kind of improve things for, for next year. But really, um, you know, I think, I don't think there's, uh, I don't think it's reinventing the wheel as so to speak, but um, I, th- I think they could probably make a few changes there just to make that a little bit, um, a little bit easier. So yeah, I guess that kind of sums up the race. And I just want to back up at this point that obviously we couldn't go into every detail of every lap of that race and it was a crazy one. So if you're listening, sat there listening to the podcast and something something wasn't clear or if there's a particular driver that you're interested in who you're wondering, you know, how they ended up where they did, then drop us a, a mention on Twitter and we'll pick that up next week and, and do our best to answer that for you or reply directly or via email if you want to email in as well. So yeah, we'll pick those up. We can't let you go, JR, without asking you about how your well, another bonkers weekend at, at Road Atlanta in IMSA. You were racing there. How did that go? Give us a give us a brief summary of how that went. Yeah, it was fun. Um, I'm just I'm having a blast driving the GT3 car. It's such a new sort of experience for me. So I was in a, a Audi R8 uh, LMS, which is uh, which was quite quite sporty. I felt like uh, it, the, the whole BOP thing and, and how like. <laughs> running with a bunch of different cars that are all working a little bit differently is sort of a new experience, but, but here at road Atlanta was, or road America was definitely fun. Um, total mixed conditions throughout the entire weekend, which for me, this is, uh, you know, I would say doing these races is as much just to get out, do some more driving and you sort of have to figure out something new as a driver, I think that's always, that's always kind of a fun challenge. And, and that's, that's sort of the approach that I'm taking with it. You know, the car's got ABS, it's got traction control. It's got all this stuff that I'm not used to. So, um, you know, the, I think the, the GT3 regulations, frankly, over the next few years are, are really exciting. And I think that's going to be a category that, um, it's just to me, a, a fun place to be. So, and the cars are quite cool. You know, there's, uh, the, the Audi is, you know, mid-engine, rear-wheel drive, all that stuff. So I think as far as the cars on the grid go, it's probably one of the ones that's a little bit easier for open-wheel guy to just go jump in. Um, open-wheel caveman. Yeah. the the uh, It's been fun. You know, there's a lot of pros in the category. So a lot of really good guys that have been doing it for a long time. So that was fun to get out there, got some got some running in in the wet. Road America is obviously just an awesome track. Um learning, you know, learning just some of the nuance, you know, this weekend we were close enough on the pace that you could start to, you know, get a feel for some of the nuances with the tire, even the wet tire, you know, and, and kind of understanding, okay, if I'm, if I'm going to show up again, sort of know, you know, way further ahead on the learning curve, just for, for how some of that stuff works. Cause we actually, we were pretty competitive, you know, relatively so all weekend, just from a, you know, um, 
potential performance perspective, I guess I'd say. And, and we threw that, you know, first, first session in the wet, we were P3, like, you know, we're just able to put it together in a couple of the sessions, but it was a little bit all over the place, just managing what the conditions were really going to be like. And in the race had an awesome second stint that we, you know, kind of, I, I jumped in, took it sort of from the back and caught up to a bunch of guys and passed them on the road, you know, over the course of the race and had some fun battling with, with guys that I have, you know, maybe raced against like 10 or 15 years ago or, or haven't ever raced against, but have, you know, followed on Twitter for a decade, you know, or whatever. So it's just been fun getting out and doing something different. And, um, you know, for me, definitely a, a number, uh, plenty of lessons along the way, um, fired it off in the, at the exit of the kink once or twice, just dealing with like getting stuffed by a prototype at the entry, which I got to say is a lot less bad in a GT3 car than it would be in an Indy car, but definitely still not the type of place that you want to find yourself four wheels off. Um, so I got a little, uh, you know, learning some hard lessons in those situations, but, um, definitely had fun. And, um, and I think, I think we'll be up for Petit Le Mans and, um, you know, maybe another event before the end of the year. So just looking forward to that. You can tell by your description of it that you're having a lot of fun. So that's always a, that's always a good thing when you're at that point in your, uh, that point in a drive or, or when you're doing something that you can just, you know, you can totally talk about it for ages and really enjoy it. So that's really cool. That's the end of this week's podcast. So thanks everyone who listened and yeah, thanks everyone to listen, who listened to last week's episode with Roman Grosjean, who joined us to talk about his first oval test. It's Indianapolis, the road course race this weekend coming up. So he, uh, Roman took pole earlier in the year. So that's a great episode to go back and catch if you haven't already. And he also talks about his thoughts on silly season and 2022 as well. So that's quite an interesting episode, hopefully with Roman, at least even if you just tune me and JR out, you can just listen to Roman and enjoy what he's got to say. Just kind of let us kind of drone on in the background and, you know, go and, at that point, go and make your cup of tea or something like that. But please do like, subscribe and review the pod let us know if there's anything we should be discussing you know a new segment or just kind of general feedback on our performance across the season we'll be back next week to review the indianapolis road course race which also shares a weekend with nascar which jr and i i'm sure are both very excited about 